The Lever. Subscriber-supported journalism that holds power accountable. As a Lever Premium subscriber, you'll get to hear exclusive bonus content from this episode and others in your feed. To become a subscriber, go to levernews.com. Hey there, and welcome to Lever Time, the flagship podcast from The Lever, an independent investigative news outlet. I'm your host, David Sirota. This episode is a slight deviation from our normal release schedule. I'm currently on the campaign trail in Pennsylvania, the swingiest of swing states, the state that could decide the entire national election. I've had the chance to speak with a few of the big-time candidates out here, IRL, uh, for non-internet folks, that's in real life. We really wanted to share these interviews with our audience before next week's midterms, so we decided to release them as a bonus episode of Lever Time. First up, my interview with Summer Lee. She's the Democratic candidate for a U.S. House seat in Pennsylvania's 12th district in the Pittsburgh area. I spoke with Summer about the flood of money that has been spent against her this election by APAC, the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, and its super PAC, the United Democracy Fund. First, they spent close to $3 million to try to defeat Summer Lee in the Democratic primary this past May. And now they're running attack ads against her in the general election, effectively supporting her Republican opponent. And get this, her Republican opponent has the same name as the retiring Democratic incumbent congressman who is leaving the seat. So APAC's money, the big money being spent against Summer Lee, is being spent for a candidate who is a Republican who has the same exact name as the outgoing Democratic incumbent. A lot of confusion is happening. Just a heads up, I recorded this interview at an outdoor event, so there was music playing and tons of people around us. So I apologize for the suboptimal audio quality, but you'll hear the interview come through. Just like, tell me a little bit about what's going on at the end of this race. I know there's the fake Mike Doyle versus you and APAC is coming in with all this money. Like, yeah, that's exactly what's coming in, right? You know, we had a, you know, we had a, a, a group that came in in the primary. Yeah making the argument that I wasn't a Democrat enough, that I right. was other in some way and right. not loyal to the party. And the same exact folks are putting a million dollars in right now to the majority, Kevin McCarthy. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, clearly, like, what do you think it's about? I mean, is it, like, why are they focused, so focused on you? What do you, you make? I mean, I, I cannot find any other indication but that it would have to be that I'm a progressive black woman. I can, I can find no other explanation, right? It's, it can't be the party. Like, they're now going in for a Republican. Yeah. No, I mean, so... It's, so, it's I mean, not that. And, and, if it, and, and to be completely, you know, honest, you know, if they were... If they cared as much as, you know, we do in Pittsburgh and in our community about the growing threat of this right-wing nationalism that we see um, in all of its manifestations, right? Anti-blackness and anti-Semitism. If if they cared as much about that as as we do here, then they could never throw down for a candidate that we know will support that, a candidate that we know is going to caucus with those folks and have already and has already campaigned, right, with someone who we know got the insurrection. So, right... I, I, I can find no other I can find no other um, answer or reasoning but for the fact that progressive black women in these spaces pose a threat to corporate interests
interest uh, and some corporate power, right? And these are, you know, Republican billionaires, right? Who are worried about their bottom line. But Do you think it goes beyond, like, the Israel issue? I, I would never be able to speak on whether it's an Israel issue because none of their complaints against me and their ads and their million-dollar ads have ever mentioned Israel. How's the, how's the party been once you won the primary? Meaning, the heal, has there been a healing or is there still a rift? Is there... I mean, I don't know if there's been a healing or a rift, right? You know, I think that the tensions that we experience nationwide are, are reflected here also. And we're growing and we're building new relationships and we're pushing our comfort level in good ways and sometimes in bad ways, right? So there's a number of folks in the party who were with us in the beginning, to be very clear, right? You know, I believe I have more elected officials supporting me than all of the candidates combined in the primary. So even as we came out of the, uh, out of the you know, out of the primary to the general, there were a few holdouts, right? There are a few folks who were never going to support me for what their personal reasons are. But the mass majority truly are and truly have been, you know, in the trenches with us and fighting, you know, but. What do you think, just one last question about when you get to Congress, uh, and I'm saying when, not if. Uh, when you get to Congress, I'm, I'm saying when, not if. But, you know, there's a lot of folks out there who feel like the progressive caucus the you know, are not holding out enough for progressive priorities. I mean, what do you say to folks like that who feel like they've been doing it for election after election after election and they don't they feel disillusioned. Yeah, it's tough, you know. I say this often, right, that, that these systems weren't built overnight, they're not gonna be dismantled overnight. And recognizing that and making sure that we are all accountable as a movement towards a strategy that will ever move us forward is I think one of the most important things that we can do, right? And having appropriate metrics is going to be major, right? What are our goals this term in this position, right? What are our metrics? How are we moving it forward? Um, it doesn't always look like we're moving a needle fast enough, and sometimes we're not. And sometimes it's harder. I'm seeing now how much harder it is to move. When I see the forces that, that rise up against me, and I'm not even there yet, the millions and millions of dollars that come in to silence progressives, to make sure that progressives aren't as bold as they, as they can be or would otherwise be. You know, when I see the ways in which, you know, they're kind of made to bend to, to different wills, and, and they fight it all the time, right? Progressives fight it all the time. But when I see those forces at play, I see how hard and how hostile it can be, you know, for progressives in, in, in government, progressives in movement spaces. So, um, so we got to fight. We got to keep fighting forward. You know, it's really the answer. So you, you're in, you're in the you're in the legislature now. I am. Yeah, my wife is a legislator in Colorado, and we're both hurt. I, I, what? Sometimes I try to explain to people the compromises or the decisions that you have to make in yeah. the legislature. Like, what do what do what do people? What, what would you say to people who don't know that process? Where sometimes fights are fights over tactics, not values, and they get misinterpreted as fights over values. Like, what do you have to say about what it's like to work in a legislature where you have to decide where the line is about what you're yeah. compromising on? Like, what what do people not understand? Oh my goodness, I don't even think it's what people don't understand, it's what people don't see. Um, it's a really discouraging process and I don't think that people are inherently wrong about it. Right, there are many times where it feels like we're starting from a deficit and how do you negotiate you know, from a deficit. That happens sometimes, that's not, that's not wrong. That happens a lot. There are some times where by the time rank and foul get to finalize bill, right? People who are higher up than us have already, you know, made their deals and, and it feels like all we can do is rake and foul. Sometimes it's to fight our own, 
to try to push the needle on those of our those in our ranks who have that sort of power. That's very true too. Um, and sometimes, actually, we are taking the best deal that we can get. And you know, sometimes we've negotiated in good faith and we fought long and hard. And that's what we came out with and we have to decide is it better to leave our most marginalized our most vulnerable with nothing or to take this right now and give them something and fight another day and sometimes it's important to know that we do have to do that because we cannot leave you know we can't leave poor people with nothing we can't leave marginalized people with nothing but it doesn't mean that the fight is over either all right one last question josh i'm out here to report on him i actually grew up with josh that's why i'm out here to as we were kids together so one thing i'm interested in is he seems to be um, relatively, if not completely well-liked among all different parts of the party. He's done a, seems he's done a decent job of being like a, somebody who's not many parts of the party or, I mean, not that he's perfect or whatever. Is that a fair perception? Cause like if you, if you come out of the progressive wing and he's also got, you know, even some Republicans supporting him. Now granted, maybe that's just because Mastriano is so crazy, but like, what would you say about Josh as a progressive and and what he's about and what you expect from him if he wins. I expect that, you know, not as a legislator myself, but I, I expect the progressive movement is going to, to stay in the game and they're going to, is going to be push and pull as there often is. And I expect that he's going to show up and he's going to listen and he's going to, you know, he's going to show up in good faith. Are there things that people should, like progressives should be concerned about with him? Oh, I don't know if it's about concern. I think that other progressives can definitely speak for themselves, right? I think that as we see just in politics, right, our party is not necessarily in conflict, but if we are a big tent, then we have to, we have to recognize and understand that there are people who come with different perspectives and who come with different priorities. I think that um, sometimes one per one person's priorities are deprioritized for good, for cause, and sometimes others are. So I think that that's natural and that's normal. I think that Josh has been doing a great job of cutting through that, of unifying a party in a state that things could really, really, really go badly. And things could, with another candidate, have been completely different. And I don't know, and I, and, and, and I don't discredit his, his political prowess and also Mastriano's extremism. And if these things are working at the right time for our state, then I'm glad I'm glad for it because we absolutely need Josh right now. We cannot cannot afford to not go into this unified. Um, like how long, how long could it have gone? Like what does that look like? I mean, what does it look like? I mean, it looks like 2016, right? The demographics of Pennsylvania are not vastly different than they were in 2016. This is a swing state, yeah. right? It could be that voters are not energized, that, you know, our voters are just not turning out. You know, it could be that, you know, folks are fighting openly. It, it, it could have been, it, it could have taken so many different forms, this election. But from literally the primary until now, he's navigated it masterfully. And I think he needed to navigate it masterfully. Uh, thinking about the fact this is a Republican surge year, that this is a midterm year in the party in power, typically, and all indications show that we are that we are struggling. And for Shapiro to hopefully, right, be pulling away instead of falling behind as so many other races for governors that we're seeing nationwide. Look at New, look at New York, right? As we're seeing that trend in a different direction, and we're seeing Josh be able to kind of avoid that. I, uh, um, I think that that really just speaks to because uh, at the beginning they forgot to invite speaks to his uh, his skill there. Uh, Next up, my interview with Josh Shapiro the Democratic nominee for governor of Pennsylvania. The Pennsylvania governor's race is probably the most important election of this year. That's because Josh's opponent, 
Republican State Senator Doug Mastriano was one of the main proponents of Donald Trump's stop the steal grift after the 2020 presidential election. At the time, Mastriano, as I said, was a state senator in Pennsylvania. He tried to create an alternate slate of electors in the aftermath of the 2020 presidential election. His efforts in 2020 ultimately failed. But the stakes for Pennsylvania's gubernatorial race couldn't be any higher, since whoever wins this race will be the state's governor during the 2024 presidential election, which means that the new governor, if it is Mastriano, could use his power over the elections to overturn the entire national 2024 presidential election. I talked with Josh during a bus trip through central Pennsylvania. We talked about his campaign based on working class themes, working class populist economic politics, a candidate who has been pushing unions at every single stop on this campaign trail. He has also made the case that Mastriano represents an existential threat to American democracy. We talked also about the future of the Democratic Party, uh, about economic populism, why some Democrats and the National Democratic Party often shy away from it, what he's learned during his two terms as attorney general, taking on what he calls big fights. By the way, full disclosure, I grew up with Josh. He's an old pal. We used to play basketball together. Now he's literally standing between America and fascism. It's pretty crazy. So some of these are going to be like annoying, but don't be mad. Well, at me. then don't ask the annoying no, ones. Sorry. We're uh, off to a good start here on the lever. <laughs> Tune in for the annoying uh, questions. Uh, actually, wait. One other thing. Always, as a reporter, always do this. Always. So do me a favor, hold my phone near you. You're taking a picture. It's a yeah. one-man band right yeah, there. Hold my, yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, great. Um, so in the stump speech, um, Austin talks about having a working-class background. You have a different background from Austin. Um, it's not exactly a working-class background. Like, I don't have a working-class background, although I do in my, my grandparents, obviously. I'm assuming, I don't know what your grandparents did, but I guess the question is, do you have to have a working-class background to represent the working class as governor? Well, first of all, I, I tend not to think about these things in terms of classes. I tend to think about it as do you, do you have a strong work ethic and you know you're willing to bust your ass to accomplish a goal in this case look out for the good people of Pennsylvania and make progress for them. I worked my whole life. I paid part of my way through college. Um Lori and I paid our whole way through law school in fact we just finished off, you know, finished paying off our student loans a couple months ago. I'm 49 years old. Um so I I take pride in how hard I work, but obviously it's true. Austin and I grew up in a different environment. I didn't grow up rich, but I also wasn't the first in my family to go to college the way Austin, his sister were. Um, I'm someone who grew up in a safe community. Austin dealt with gun violence as he was growing up. Uh, and we're both now in this moment where we have the chance to govern together, God willing. And one of the reasons why I asked Austin to run with me is because I wanted a different perspective around the table. I wanted to make sure that all people were heard from and all people could be, um, you know, feel, feel so they were also around the table. I think representation matters. 
And so on the surface, obviously you'll notice that Austin's black, I'm white, but I think that you know, some of the bigger differences are, are the difference in our upbringing and different perspective that brings to the table. But I think we both share um, a common, you know, commonality in that we both work very, very hard. Um, we're oriented toward our goal, and our goal is to serve the good people of Pennsylvania. On the question of um, energy, uh, just going around with you the last uh, day, two days, we were in Western PA, and you said um, you support an all of the above energy policy, and you link that to jobs. Uh, you've also hammered your opponent, rightly so in my view, for being a climate denialist. Uh, and then yesterday night, you, among the things that you touted in terms of your big fights was going after frackers. So I guess the question then becomes, how can we at once accept climate science which says that we need to be doing less, if not any, fossil fuel development. How can we accept that science, but also have an all of the above energy strategy that respects that science? I think it's a false choice to say we have to choose between the dignity of work and environmental justice. I think we can do both. I think we can protect the boilermaker's job today and also create tens of thousands of green energy jobs of tomorrow. I don't think it's mutually exclusive. In fact, by the way, um, just as a side, I would say some of the biggest environmentalists I've met along the way are the boilermakers and the steam fitters and the electricians and others who are doing work in natural gas and work in the energy sector. I think what's important is that we create an environment where we can move toward more renewable sources of energy. That's why one of the key planks of my campaign is to get to 30% renewable energy by the year 2030. We call that our AEPS standards, which I want to update. And as attorney general, uh, I criminally charged fracking companies and issued a grand jury report that documented things we must do to make um, to address climate change, to make our public health and public safety better off. And so when I'm governor, I plan to be very aggressive when it comes to regulation, very aggressive when it comes to changing the law to make people safer. And I really don't think it's mutually exclusive. These companies need to know what the rules of the road are and they need to be enforced. And I've shown I can do that as AG and I'll do it as governor. What do you say to people who look at New York that banned fracking and say that's every place that has lots of fracking needs to ban it? not just because of the residual effects of fracking, a.k.a. water pollution, et cetera, et cetera, but because of the emissions. I just think it's not realistic. If you want to be able to have access to reliable energy, if you want to have access to affordable energy, if you want to create jobs in the new economy, you have to make sure that natural gas is one part of it, along with other renewable sources. But we also need to, between our university investment, our, um, our Commonwealth's investment, spurring on the private sector to act. We need to figure out ways to do all of this work cleaner and ways in which we could do it in a way that protects public health and public safety. And so I want to spur on that type of innovation and growth. When you look at universities like Carnegie Mellon University, Pitt and others, they're doing this research right now that these um, you know, energy companies need to take advantage of. So as governor, I'll try to connect the dots 
on how best to do that. On on unions, unions are a huge theme in your campaign, huge. Um, and we reported, a lot of uh, other folks have reported too about Mastriano, your opponent, being a pro-right-to-work uh, candidate. Um, how scared should workers, labor leaders, folks who believe in unions be of the right to work movement and why is it such a why is that theme such a central part of your campaign there's no question that workers should be scared here in pennsylvania i think the union way of life is being threatened right now Um, my opponent has made clear that he wants to turn this into a right to work state effectively ending collective bargaining ending um, the union life as we know it and he has said he wants to put real muscle behind it And as Austin knows, this legislature, as it's constituted, will put a bill on the desk of the next governor to make this a right to work state. So this isn't some theoretical exercise. This is what is going to happen. He'll sign it into law. I'll veto it. And I'll always defend the union way of life. I'm incredibly proud in this campaign to be endorsed by every union in the Commonwealth. They have my back from the building trades to public sector unions, everybody in between. Um, they are with me in Austin Davis and we're proud to have their backs. If you invest in the union way of life, that raises wages, it improves workplace safety, it strengthens this Commonwealth. I think unions help build Pennsylvania and we need to make sure they're invested in to continue the growth that we need to have. On the issue of religion, you speak often about your religion on the campaign trail. Doug Mastriano affiliates with anti-Semites. This, these are facts that are not in dispute. I think one one question on that is, were you expecting religion, your religion, to be so central in the campaign as an attack point? And... You've been in this state's politics a long time. Is that a new thing at the level that it's at in this race than you've seen in either your previous races or other races around the state? Well, my faith is central to who I am. It's what calls me into service along with um, trying to make this world a better place for my kids and um, the other kids and grandkids across Pennsylvania. And so I'm very open about my faith, but my faith is a tool that drives me to do service. By contrast, Doug Mastriano uses his faith as a way to attack others, to try to deny others their fundamental freedom, to divide us. It's very, very different. Um, So no, obviously I never have sustained the kind of attacks I've sustained in this campaign. But to be clear, David, this isn't about how his attacks make me feel. It's about how it makes Pennsylvanians feel. You know, when you attack someone because of who they worship to or what they look like, where they come from, who they love, you make us all less safe. Hate speech begets hate crimes. And Doug Mastriano is exhibit A of the kind of dangerous, divisive rhetoric that makes everyone less safe. The question of of democracy, Uh, Pennsylvania, one of the biggest swing states, your opponent, uh, an election denier. Whoever wins the governor's race is going to be holding that office during the 24 election. Obviously, the stakes are high because of the appointment power of the secretary of state. I guess my question is, how does that make you feel personally? It seems like an enormous amount of pressure and anxiety, knowing that it sounds like it's something out of a Hollywood movie, but 
you really may be the one person standing in the way of a full-blown constitutional crisis in 2024. Like, how does that weigh on you? I can tell you that I feel the weightiness um, of this moment, and I'm aware how much is riding on my shoulders and Austin's shoulders, um, how much this race is going to matter to the future of our democracy. But I will tell you that that weightiness, uh, that heaviness here, it doesn't slow me down. I mean, if anything, and you've seen the pace we keep up, it it fuels me to keep going because I know how much is on the line. What's unique about Pennsylvania is not just that we're, I mean, arguably the swingiest of all swing states in the nation, but here the governor appoints the secretary of state. So the governor has the power to oversee our elections. And Mastriano has already forecasted what he plans to do. He says he's going to review the voting logs, make corrections, and decertify certain voting machines. Those are his words, not mine. And so if you care about our democracy, which is predicated upon respecting the will of the people and the people choosing their representatives, then you have to care about this governor's race in Pennsylvania. This really is the tip of the spear. This really is um, you know, the race that is going to, I think, have an extraordinary impact on the future of our democracy. So... Yeah, I feel the weightiness, but it doesn't slow me down. It drives me forward to, you know, to make the case against Doug Mastriano and win this election. The crime issue, um, you have said you want to invest in more police officers and you have a line in your stump speech where you say people have a right to be safe and to feel safe. Uh, be safe, meaning there's... It's good to know you've been listening, David. <laughs> <laughs> I have been listening. I have been listening. Um just so folks understand the be safe as i understand it is have a right to feel like your community is policed properly and feel safe have a right to feel that you don't have to be afraid when the cops are in your community i mean and you can correct me if i've got it right okay so yeah i mean i think may i sure. just jump in real quick yeah. i mean i think you mostly have it right be safe means you have to have adequate policing in your community numbers wise the type of folks that are doing the policing where but then you also have to feel safe, meaning when you see a police officer, you have to feel like they're there for your safety and welfare. And so that requires training and policies that um, promote that, that sort of public peace. It requires police officers to engage in the community, to talk to the kids on the street corners because they're on a foot patrol instead of being in their cars, to talk to the grandmoms on their porches, to attend the community meetings. So it's both a right to be safe meaning investing in adequate policing in our communities and feel safe having the perspective when you see a police officer that you know they are there to help. And by the way, my experience is the vast, 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 vast majority of police officers already are there to make you feel safe. But it's important that we find ways to strengthen the dialogue between police and the community so that community members all understand that, know that. So your argument then rejects the idea that we've seen in the wake of police brutality scandals that the problem is the police as an institution. And I guess my question is, there's now in our political debate, the Republicans are really demagoguing crime, you know, quote unquote, tough on crime. We know where that led in a previous generation. It led to the crime bill, it led to mandatory sentencing, it led to a lot of things that have, have, I think, have become problematic. I guess the question on that is, how do we propose the policies you've proposed, a balance, be safe, feel safe, without inflaming 
the Republican argument, which is a much different argument, a much more draconian argument, a much more ugly politics of quote unquote tough on crime. Well, you use the right word there and balance is the right word. You have to strike that balance. Listen, it is not balanced to defund police. And I said that two days after George Floyd was killed, when righteous people took to the streets to protest. And when they called for defunding police, I said, wait a second, if you want to strengthen the relation between the police and the community, we need to hire more police in order to bring them closer uh, to the community. So that is out of balance. Balance comes when you're able to speak from a position uh, of authority and experience, as I'm able to as attorney general, to say that, you know, investing more dollars in hiring is one key piece of it, but you can't do that absent real training. And, and updates to our training, community engagement, um, policies that are going to strengthen public safety and strengthen public confidence in policing. Look, I'll give you a concrete example of that. I brought together law enforcement leaders from all across the Commonwealth, as well as reform advocates and the Legislative Black Caucus, including Austin Davis and Donna Bullock, the chair of the um, Legislative Black Caucus. To have a dialogue around where we could find some common ground. You know, one thing everybody agreed on is that no one wants, quote unquote, bad police in our community. The police don't want it and the community doesn't want it. And so as a result of us coming together and me setting the table for that dialogue, we passed under Austin's leadership in, in the legislature the first ever statewide database that tracks police officer misconducts. That's an example of finding balance. We can hire more police, but we have to make sure that the confidence that people have in the community is the same confidence that people have in the local police department to have them out on the beat. That's just one example of the kind of work we need to do to find that balance and bring people together. If you're elected, you would be a Democratic governor with a likely Republican legislature. How are you going to get the things you want done with a legislature that is controlled by an increasingly, obviously, Trump-infused, MAGA-infused Republican legislature? We have a responsibility when we get elected to these positions, whether it's governor, lieutenant governor, state senator, state representative. We have a responsibility to actually work for the good people of Pennsylvania. And when you serve in one of those positions, the only way you can work and get things done is by talking to people who might disagree with you on some issues in order to find common ground on others. So I'll tell you what, when they send me a bill that bans abortion and criminalizes it the way Doug Mastriano wants, I'm going to veto that. There's no compromise there, but I'm not going to veto it and then take my ball and go home and say, I'm never talking to you again because we disagree on this issue, albeit an unbelievably important and fundamental issue. But if I can then turn around and work with them on bringing Votech back to our classrooms or investing more dollars in the next budget in apprenticeship programs, we're going to find that common ground. I think too oftentimes in our politics, we view this as a zero-sum game. If you have one idea I disagree with, then all of your ideas must be bad. Or if I have one idea I disagree with, all, all mine must be bad. Or if I agree with you and I want to vote for your idea, then somehow I have to lose something in the process, right? Like, we can all gain something. I can help that state rep bring something back to their district while also getting things done for the Commonwealth. We can find that common ground again. So yes, the fact that many in their caucuses still deny the election, still have some of the same views that Doug Mastriano has, that complicates it, that makes it harder. 
But there is still some common ground that, that we can find. And yes, if there is a Republican legislature of the, you know, roughly whatever, say 10 things I'm proposing, it's going to be hard to get all 10 things done. We're going to get a lot done, a lot more than what's getting done right now, because we're going to talk, we're going to engage, we're going to try to find that common ground. And I want your listeners to understand this. Common ground is not a bad thing. Common ground doesn't mean that you sacrificed your values. Common ground doesn't mean that you've given up on your ideological approach. It just means being pragmatic in an age where you've got to find that, you know, that um, that middle ground. Again, middle ground to me is less about ideology and more about where we can help each side find a win and deliver something for their constituents. What's your analysis of how Donald Trump won in 2016 and why his, I guess, movement remains somewhat powerful, influential in a state like Pennsylvania? I would just point out I won in 2016 on the same exact ballot. In fact, I got more votes than Donald Trump did in that election. So and I won in 2020 when he lost and earned more votes than anyone in the history of Pennsylvania. So I I don't know that even now I can sit here and analyze that race. I would just say that in general, what I have seen um, be successful is not a big secret. It's just, you know, showing up, meeting voters where they are, treating them with respect, showing them that you have your ba- their backs, even if you don't agree on every issue. That's been the way I've been able to win here in Pennsylvania. And um, that's what I'm going to keep trying to do. Uh, in, in this election and going forward. You talk a lot on the stump about big fights. You've had really big fights with really powerful institutions, corporations, the Catholic Church, etc. Um, seems to me that in the Democratic Party, a different kind of politician than you tries to avoid big fights, avoid calling out the bad guys. Um, I'm curious if you agree with that, if you think that your party, and I know you don't like to talk all about, you know, your national party, but just it's a it it is different the way you've you've done it. It is more uh, in the vein of, let's say, Elliot Spitzer of 15, 20 years ago uh, when he was prosecuting Wall Street and the like. Why do you think there is a hesitation and what do you think people can glean from your record doing that what can they glean about it as a political formula not that the suits the and the cases were a formula but no i understand the point of your question i mean i guess i've always thought like you work so hard to earn these positions of trust what the hell are we doing here if we're not going to take on these big fights and actually get something done for people and if you want to get something done, you got to be willing to take on the powerful interests. Because you know what I know? The powerful interests don't want things to change. They're powerful for a reason because the status quo is working for them. The status quo is often ripping off other people and hurting the little guy. And so that's why I've taken on the student loan companies and the fracking companies and the for-profit colleges. That's why I've taken on the opioid companies. And taking on the most powerful organization on the planet, the Roman Catholic Church. I think you get put in these positions to fight for people, to stand up for them and to try and deliver something for them. And so I'm sure as hell not going to back down to any of these powerful corporations, any of these big donors or any of these people who love the status quo because status quo isn't working for a whole bunch of people. 
And we need to create some more balance in this Commonwealth and in this country. Last question is just about the national political situation. Having run a bunch of times successfully in a swing state, what are your lessons? What would you say to Democrats in similar swing states about what potentially their shortfalls are, what the party could be doing better from your experience? Yeah, I've, I've run and won eight times here in Pennsylvania, and this is the swingiest of all swing states. I've learned um, you got to show up. You got to treat people with respect. You got to listen instead of just talk. You, you can't presume that you know everything when you show up in a neighborhood or a, a county or a community. And I can tell you, I have been humbled by this process. I, I said that the other night, and I mean it. I mean, I I have been really humbled both by the, the good people of Pennsylvania welcoming me into their homes and their communities and having faith in me that I can deliver for them. You talked about the weightiness of this campaign in this moment. But I've also been humbled because you learn through this process, uh, there's more you don't know than what you do know. And so every day I'm striving to learn more and and do better for people and hear what's on their minds and hear what's making them concerned and what has them be fearful and what has them be hopeful. And so I would just say that Democrats need to show up again, even in communities that haven't voted for a Democrat in a lot of years. I would say Democrats have to demonstrate some humility. Democrat, Democrats have to speak in plain tones and plain language and not offend people uh, through their through their words and their actions. Um, I think humility is really important and listening is really important. And we got to get back to that nationally as a party. Josh, thanks so much. Thank you. That's it for this special episode of Lever Time. We'll be back next Thursday with our election results coverage. If you enjoy the work we're doing here and want to support us, please head over to levernews.com to become a paid subscriber. That gives you access to all of the Lever's premium content, including the expanded version of this podcast, Lever Time Premium. One last favor, please be sure to like, subscribe, and write a review for Lever Time on your favorite podcast app. Until next time, I'm David Sirota. Rock the boat.